it would be good for you to have 1 John open before you. Page 1,225 in the Bible there in the pew. One of my great privileges as minister in a church like this is that I get to spend time with our new members as they join the congregation. Whenever people come and say or or maybe fill in a card in the pew that they are interested in in joining the congregation, I always arrange to have a, a meeting with them and a bit of a chat. And we talk over quite a lot of stuff on that occasion. Often there are people whom I don't know very well, so we get to know each other a little bit, and then the, the conversation goes over a pretty predictable variety of topics, really. We talk about the new members' recent church experience, or lack of it, if they haven't been going to any other church recently. We talk about their first impressions of this congregation here at Kirkpatrick Memorial, and quite often people share, at that point, the reason why they feel they want to throw their lot in with us and commit themselves to this body of Christ's people here. Time and time again in that conversation, I hear people talk about the warm welcome that they have found at Kirkpatrick Memorial. They talk about how people made a conscious effort to come and speak to them the first time or one of the early times that they visited. They talk about the person sitting beside them taking time to introduce themselves and to talk to them after the service. People are struck by the warmth of fellowship that there is after our morning and evening services as we gather over a cup of tea and coffee. By the way, at this point, I'm not engaging in any promotion of this congregation. I'm just uh, sharing with you the kind of conversation that I often have with people as they're joining uh, joining our congregation. People are saying that Kirkpatrick Memorial is a friendly church, and I hope that that's been your experience. I hope that that's true. I hope you find a genuine welcome as you come and spend time with us in this community of Christ's people. A handshake at the door and somebody talking to us over a cup of tea is only the beginning, though, of what God has for His people and what God's called us to in the church. We have been called to something way, way richer than that. We've been called to live a life of love. We've been commanded to love one another as Christ loved us. Now, that, of course, goes beyond a handshake and a smile and a quick cup of tea and a chat. This is what we long for in in our Christian churches. That's the biblical vision which is held before us. And I think it raises very important questions for a community like ours. How can we ensure that this, this friendly, welcoming place that, that we may be just now becomes the real deal? that it becomes a place where people share wonderful love, the love that God Himself longs for us to share? How can we prevent our community from turning, from turning stale, where that, that friendliness and that warmth goes, or from turning sour, 
where we end up fighting each other and backstabbing? What can we do to ensure that our church continues to develop as a community of love? Well, I want to think with you for a moment before we set off in that direction about this command to live a life of love. Love is one of the slipperiest words in the English language. It's hard to imagine a word that's more messed up and more confused just now than the word love. Think of how the word's used. We could easily use it today on a Sunday of our worship for the true and the holy God. That's a very appropriate context to use the word love. We love God. And then the next minute, we could be talking of making love. A a euphemism for, for loveless sex in our society. Think of the violence that goes hand in hand with love. The violence, physical and emotional, that occurs in relationships that begin in love. 80s rock star, rock singer Pat Benatar, she struck a chord with her song, Love is a Battlefield. There's no other aspect uh, of the human experience where we fail so frequently and where we're hurt as badly as in love. But yet we long for it, yet we dream of it, and, and yet we continue to attempt it. Love is a slippery word, but it's a Christian word, and it's a biblical word. As men and women of the Christian community, we need to recover this word, and there are very definite ways in which we need to use it. God's Word teaches us that God loves us, and we have been called to to share that message with one another. We need to be clear what that means. As soon as we discover that God loves us, we discover also that we are called to love one another. We need to be clear about what that means. Whether we like it or not, this this life of love is right at the heart of what God calls us to. So we need to, to do our very best to understanding what that calling really is. If you want to learn about the difficulty of love on the one hand, but the absolute necessity of love on the other hand, there's no better place in God's Word to go than to John's first letter for guidance. That's what we're going to do for the next few weeks in our evening services. We call 1 John a letter, but actually it it reads more like a sermon. You'll notice it doesn't start with an address or anything to anybody. He just... Uh, goes straight to it. This sermon's addressed to a congregation of Christian people we don't know where. But one thing we can tell just by reading the letter is that they're struggling to live the life of love that they have been called to. We don't know for sure who the writer is, but uh, early tradition in the Christian church tells us that it was John the Apostle, uh, Jesus' dearly loved disciple, We're not really entirely sure that it is John, but even though we don't know his identity, we do know what his job is. He's a pastor. He's writing to a congregation of people, and his job's the same here as any pastor's job. 
His job is to call people to live the life of love that God has called us to. Before we charge in and listen in on John's sermon, I want to warn you that I'm not going to approach this book verse by verse or even paragraph by paragraph, as you're probably used to me doing. If we did that, we'd be in for quite a confusing and repetitive series. New Testament scholar Gordon Fee warns, you may experience real difficulty trying to follow John's train of thought. Not only is it hard at times to see how some ideas connect with others, but certain obviously significant themes are repeated several times along the way. Now, I'm going to heed Gordon Fee's warning, and I'm not going to go through this book verse by verse or even paragraph by paragraph. I'm going to heed as well the warning of some preachers I've spoken to about First John. A couple of guys I was talking to about this recently were honest enough to admit that they started off a series preaching through John verse by verse, and by the time they'd finished their series, they realized they'd preached the same sermon about three times along the way. So we're, we're not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to use probably about four of our evening services to have a look at, at some of the major themes that there are in this letter of John's, and hopefully we'll avoid some of the worst pitfalls. We are going to read the whole letter straight through, though, and, and we're going to do that in our readings. So thank you to Anna for reading the first chapter and a half. By the way, I'd encourage you to do that at home in between Sundays. Have a go at reading First John. That'll help you get a feel for the kind of things that John's talking about. It'll also demonstrate to you how, how his structure isn't entirely uh, and initially very clear to us. But you'll get an idea of what's important to John and what we can be learning from him. Tonight, we're going to pick up an introductory, in an introductory way, John's main theme of the letter, and that's love. Then next week, we're going to pick up uh, another prominent theme, and that's sin. And there's an interesting question there. Why is a guy who's writing about love spend so much of his letter talking about sin? There's a, a third major theme that needs a wee bit of explanation and understanding, and that's his theme of antichrist, which becomes a concern later in the letter. And then on the, the fourth and final evening, we'll try and sum it up and bring it all together. Sometimes, uh, let, let's move into to this first discussion then this evening. Sometimes we imagine that the Bible is full of perfect people and perfect communities. We have discovered Jesus. We've become convinced that we want to follow him. So we charge into the gospels to see, to see the disciples, the first followers of Jesus, to see how they followed him, because we hope we can learn from them how we might follow him. We have become part of a church, a community of people who follow Jesus. So we set off into the Acts of the Apostles or, or we read Paul's letters to the early churches because we want to see their models for how church life could be. But when we do that, 
more often than not, we come back from the Scriptures disappointed because we discover that the early disciples were weak. They're just like us. We discover that the early churches were no better than the communities that we find ourselves in. And that's definitely the case with this community receiving John's first letter. This community is in a mess. We can see that simply by paying attention to John's vocabulary. Whenever he addresses their behavior, Pastor John uses the word lie or liar five times. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and don't live by the truth. In verse 10, he says, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him, that is God, out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says, The man who says, I know him, but doesn't do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth isn't in him. In chapter 4, verse 20, John says, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. And in chapter 5, verse 10, he says, anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. Lying isn't something we talk about in polite company. And if you want to get a positive reaction from the people you're with, the last thing you do is go into that crowd and start accusing people of being liars. Strong language from John here but yet he doesn't hold back from using this kind of language. There's something wrong in this community that John's addressing. Lying's not the only sin that he flags up. I'm not going to ask you to look up the other references, but he talks about hate four times in this short letter in chapter 2, verse 9 and verse 11, in chapter 3, verse 15, in chapter 4, verse 20. There's hatred in this church. John talks about children of the devil in chapter 3, verse 8. Three times he talks about a refusal to love in chapter 3, verse 10, verse 14, and in chapter 4, verse 8. He draws attention to self-deceit in chapter 1, verse 6 and a refusal to help someone in need in chapter 3, verse 17. This is not an ideal congregation. If that's what we're looking for, we've got to look somewhere else. This is not an ideal congregation that Pastor John looks after, not by any means, And yet, it's not an unusual congregation. This community here sounds an awful lot like the communities we read of in the Old Testament, like the other communities that we read of in the New Testament. This congregation is, in fact, the norm. And it continues to be the norm in the 2,000 years or so of church history. Friends, the truth is, 
that when saints and sinners who gather together in Jesus' name in buildings like this and in congregations like this do so, they're usually a bunch of people who don't get along awfully well all of the time. If you've come here tonight or come to Kirkpatrick Memorial in recent times expecting to find a a perfectly happy community, a place of wall-to-wall harmony, then I need to disabuse you of that straight away. I need to say to you, you will be let down either tonight after the service when one of us gets it wrong and is rude to you or or, or sometime in the not-too-distant future. Folks, as a preacher of God's Word, I need to remind you that that perfect church you're looking for, and even that perfect church we wish we were, it doesn't exist. And it won't exist any time before Christ comes and perfects us all. Churches, you see, are full of people who are in all stages of the development of learning to live the life of love that we've been called to. If we want to live well, the best thing that we can do is just recognize that, name it, and start to move on. Can we agree to do that this evening? Can we agree not to pretend to be a perfect church? Not to be a pretend to be a place of sweetness and light, but rather to recognize that we're a community of people who sin and who sin often. There's a very good reason, isn't there, why the church of Jesus Christ isn't a perfect place. It's because we're in it. It's because I'm in it. And you How could it be a perfect place with, with folks like us? Did you pass a test? Tell me, did, did you pass some sort of a test demonstrating your ability to love? Did you pass that test before you became a member of this church or any other? No. Do, do we have some sort of annual review that we ask our members to go through? just to check that they're growing as people able to love others? Do we have that? Of course not. Friends, we are here because Christ has called us. We're here not because we are able to love, but because we're beginning to learn how to do it. We're here to be formed over the rest of our lives into people who, who might just get a glimpse of the love that God has for us and might just be learning how to share that love with other people. This is going to be slow work, isn't it? We're slow learners. I'm, I'm still relatively young, despite what I was telling the congregation last week about me being 35 and being halfway through my life at this point. I know I'm still relatively young, but but I know already 
how slow I am to learn these lessons. And some of us have only more years of experience that impresses on us how slow we are to change. Although God's very patient with us, we're not patient with ourselves. We're not patient with one another. And the world out there isn't patient with us at all. The world out there looks on us and wonders why we bother trying to learn this life of love. Well, friends, we bother because God is love. Because he's called us in love. Because he's acted in love to save us. Because he's commanded us to love one another. Eugene Peterson puts it like this when he writes in this passage. He says, love is the ocean in which we swim. So what? If many of us can only wade in the shallows. And others of us can barely dog paddle for short distances. We're learning And we see the possibility of one day taking long, easy, relaxed strokes into the deep. Friends, John's congregation isn't ideal. But that doesn't take away anything of the reality that they're a loved people. John consistently addresses these sinning and sinful people in words that speak of God's love for them. Let's turn again to John 1, 1 John, and notice some of the language that he uses. Remember the first set of passages we looked up about liars, a community where there's hatred, where there's deception, and where there's the refusal to love. These aren't nice people. And yet, now let's look at how John addresses them. He identifies them as little children. It's a real term of affection. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My dear children. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says, I write to you, dear children. Five more times he uses this, this loving name. Pastor John's in an interesting place here. He knows there's sin in this community. And yet he loves these people. It comes through every time he addresses them. And it's not only John's idea that that these people are beloved children. They're also referred to as children of God. Look at chapter 3, verse 1, a very famous verse. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. Children of God, liars, deceivers, people who hate one another, and John says, children of God. I think there's a wonderful thing going on in this this passage, even as we just begin to notice some of the major themes in, in John's address. John seems to be happy to live with two realities which we probably wouldn't normally hold side by side. Sin and love. He's happy to say that the same community that's full to the brim of sin and sinful people 
is yet at the same time a community that is loved by God and is called to live out the life of love. Friends, I think that's a beauty that the church needs to recover. That kind of honesty about who we really are, a recognition of the sinfulness that's in us, but yet a refusal to forget that we're loved and that that we love one another. I I think that's one of the, the things that we in the church could do for each other is to remind each other often that we are people who are loved by God, to remind each other of our true identity. You see, we live in a world where we're given all kinds of other labels. It starts almost as soon as we're born. We're given labels that people use to manage our way through life. We're a preschooler. Then we're a P1. Anyone who's in the the education system these days will know the propensity that there is there to label our children with this, that, or the other condition. They're smart or they're special needs. They're ADHD or they're autistic. But as we move on, all of us pick up these labels. We're average, we're short, we've failed the 11 plus. And as we enter adulthood, the labels just keep on coming. They're all they're all, relation, they're all labels that have nothing to do with who we really are as people. They're, they don't tell us anything about our relationships with one another. Labels like married, widowed, divorced, accountant, butcher, teacher, leader, follower, failure. Those labels, they're inevitable. It's probably hard to imagine life where we don't use labels in one way or another. But when these labels become all-encompassing, they destroy our identity. It's never enough to sum somebody up by the job that they do and their marital status. To say that he's a doctor and that he's married never tells us all that there is to be told about any person. It doesn't matter what our job is. That doesn't tell us who we are. Our marital status, no matter how successful or not it is, is not our identity. These labels, useful as far as they go, tell us almost nothing about who we actually are. Who are we? We're the beloved. We're the little children of God. Are you in Christ tonight? Then then think of all those labels that make up your identity. Live with them, yes. They're, They're there. But stick a massive label over it. Beloved. Child of God. Friends, I think we have a key task for the church here. We need to to remind each other and show each other that we are the beloved children of God. This, This love that we've been called to, 
It's demanding. It's glorious. And it's never going to be a finished product. I think we have here the reason why the church steers clear of making love the foundation on which we build. We'd rather do something else. You see, there are other things that we can do that are easier, things that we can complete, like erecting a building. That's easier than loving one another. We can start a building fund and stick up a new church hall far easier than loving one another. Or we can decide to to do something that's going to be a success. So we start a new program And if enough people enroll on it, then we call it a success. And we imagine that our church life is succeeding. That's easier than loving one another. So that's what we do. We leave Jesus' command and and we settle for for other things, like teaching each other things and, and training each other for some aspects of life. Friends, I I think both of those things are important. We do need to to teach certain things. We need to to train each other and learn together at Kirkpatrick Memorial. But we can't settle for this. Why? Because it's possible to teach each other things and to train each other in ways of being and yet not to love one another. Isn't that maybe where our Presbyterian heritage has failed us over the years, that we have developed a a cerebral, intellectual way of being with God that you can practice without loving God and without loving one another. Let me close for this evening. What we need to do if we're going to take God's word seriously and take John's advice seriously is to refuse to go ahead with any other vision of church life other than loving one another, other than reminding one another that we're God's beloved children. This is Christ's command that we love one another. This is our identity. And nothing else will do. It's in this letter. We didn't read it tonight, but we find a well-known expression of God's character. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. John says, Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Do you preach wonderful sermons? Do you go all over Ireland with the good news of Jesus and all through the world? Do you give a huge proportion of your income to God's work and to the poor? still possible that you don't know God. Whoever does not love does not know God 
because God is love. So whenever we live lives of love, we imitate and we, we live out the very life of God. In chapter 12 of verse 4, John tells us that if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. God living in us. His love complete in us. Think of that. That's the vision. That's what, that's what getting together on Sunday nights on the Newtonards Road and on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights and any other time we get together is all about. It's learning to love so that as we grow in that, we look ever more and more like God who is love. Friends, do you know why we don't try this in church life? Not really. Not consistently and not well. Because it's the most difficult thing we could ever do or try to do. And yet, this is what we're called to. We don't have any choice. Whoever does not love does not know God. Let us pray that God would meet with us and teach us how to love one another as he's loved us. Let's pray. Father God, we come now and having heard your word, Lord, we recognize that, that we may have got some things wrong about what we thought you've called us to and what we thought church life is. Lord, you've called us not primarily to be a group of people who, who run organizations or who run meetings or who do stuff in the community around us. Lord, you've called us first and foremost to live the very love that you have given us, to live at large in this community where you've placed us. Lord, thank you for the, the ways in which you have birthed that love into this church. And Lord, we pray that you would, would show us the, the, very, the very centrality of that love to the life of this church. Lord, guard us from any blind alley. Guard us from getting caught up in stuff that feels important and feels exciting and worthwhile if it's not the stuff that nurtures us in your love. Lord, we pray that you would teach us an honesty and a humility about who we really are. Lord, we have learned a lot tonight about the, the sin 
that is in church communities. Lord, we don't want to pretend that that sin isn't in our gathering this evening. Lord, instead we we throw our lives open to you. We confess our sin and our need of your grace. And we pray that in that context, we would know your love more than ever and be more than ever able to love one another. We pray that you would help us by your Spirit. Amen.